It's so good to see you, all of you. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, you're looking great. Are you ready for the word? Yes. You got a pen and paper to take notes or your phone? Okay, you got to be careful with that phone because it will ding and social media and all of that, but uh, it's okay. Uh, in fact, while you've got your phone, why don't you go ahead and log on to the church service on Facebook or YouTube and share that with all of your friends. That will be your evangelism strategy for the day. Father, we come before you today. God, you're so good. You're so good. Thank you for your presence. I ask that you would be with us today as we hear from you and your word. God, that you would let our hearts be receptive, our ears would be open, our eyes would be open. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, a man walked into a bar, an establishment. He ordered a drink, and he drank it until suddenly he heard a voice. And the voice said, nice tie. The man looked around. Nobody was there except him and the, the bartender, server. And here's another voice that says, really cool shirt, too. And he looks around, and there's no one there but the server and him. And finally, he hears a, another voice, and he says, your hair looks really good like that. He finally had enough, and he's getting concerned, and he turns to the bartender, and he says, I keep hearing this voice, and the man said, oh, it's, it's okay, don't worry about it. Those are the peanuts, sir. They're complimentary. <laughs> That's a good one, right? I hope when you came into this establishment that you came prepared to hear something, that your ears are open, you're, you're here to hear something good. Some of you have been conditioned to think that church talk is bad. It's not bad. It is the good news. We don't have the bad news of the gospel. We have the good news of Jesus Christ. So I hope that you're here this morning and you are expecting to hear. Frederick Buchner in The Magnificent Defeat, written in 1979, says this, when a minister reads out of the Bible, I'm sure that at least nine times out of ten, the people who happen to be listening at all hear not what is really being read, but only what they expect to hear read. And I think that what most people expect to hear read from the Bible is an edifying story, an uplifting story, maybe a moral lesson, something elevating, obvious, and boring. So that is exactly what very often they do hear, something boring. Only that is too bad because if you really listen, he says, and maybe you have to forget that it is the Bible being read or a minister who is reading it, there is no telling what you might hear. The Bible is fascinating. And today we're starting a new series called Strange Encounters. There are a lot of strange encounters in God's Word, and I'm excited to share one of them. I'm excited to share the one today. And this series looks at some of the more bizarre passages in Scripture, the ones that make us think, what exactly is going on here? 
What, what is God trying to say? So we're going to dig into the strange encounters because even the strangest parts of the Bible reveal God's nature to us and encourage us to strengthen, strengthen our faith. And my hope in this series is to help you connect deeply with Scripture, which will inevitably help you connect deeply with God, help you connect deeply to yourself, help you connect deeply to others, and help you connect deeply to our community. The VP at LifeWay, LifeWay is a Christian publishing house. He did some research and concluded that the number one predictor of spiritual health and spiritual growth in a Christian is your Bible reading habit. Is that, that's not shocking, but in a way it kind of is. The number one habit that determines your spiritual growth is not the amount of hours that you pray, not the amount of services that you attend, not the amount of money that you give, not the number of ministries that you serve. The number one factor that gives an estimation on your spiritual health is the amount of Bible that you read. That's the number one predictor for spiritual growth. Do you read your Bible consistently? The problem is, though, most people are good with Genesis. Anyone read Genesis lately? Yeah, Genesis is pretty good. You understand it. You, there's a creation story. There's a a flood, there's a, a, a hairy boy that wants soup. And a, a br- his brother that wears skinny jeans and has, never mind, doesn't matter. We're good with Genesis. We like the story. We're good with Exodus. Oh, the story of Exodus, we, we know that. But then we get to Leviticus and it gets a little muddy. It's a little concerning, like, okay, why is God telling them to slaughter all the men, women, and children? And why does God really care that I wear two types of fabric at the same time? You know, it gets a little confusing. Confusion sets in in our Christian life, and maybe we just resort back to John 3.16, because that's pretty easy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, you know, we... We memorize that one, and and maybe we just define our Bible study to the New Testament. After all, that's the New Covenant. That's where we're currently living. That's got to be the most important, right? I mean, just just read the letters in red. The letters in red is what Jesus said. That's got to be the only thing that's important, right? No, it's actually not the only thing that's important in Scripture, but that's what happens when confusion sets in, when we don't know how to understand the Bible, we don't know how to interpret the Bible, we begin to live our life through a lens of confusion. It reminds me of a joke. George W. Bush, former president, was sitting in the Oval Office. This is a joke, by the way. Uh, Sitting in the Oval Office, and his secretary walks in with a phone in his hand, and he says, Three Brazilian soldiers just died in Iraq. George W. Bush said, oh no. Put his face in his hands and he sits there and the cabinet was pretty shocked because old W. didn't respond too much when, you know, just three people had died in war. A lot of people were dying. 
They didn't know what was going on until finally Bush looks up and he says, how many is a Brazilian? I promise that's the last, last corny joke I'm going to say, but you, you got to admit that one's funny. I've read it 15 times and I laugh every time I read it. How much is a Brazilian? It's helpful to understand what Scripture is saying because when we're confused on what it's saying, we retreat into just the familiar parts. But you don't, you don't grow in the familiar parts, right? You grow in the areas where God is trying to sharpen that which is within you. The, the veil that is over your eyes of parts of text that you don't yet understand, God wants to lead you into that so you can grow even even more than you currently are. You're doing good, by the way, but there is more. And our text today is one of those strange encounters that I just want to talk about. It's a few verses. The strange encounter is actually in two verses. Two verses. Um, And this encounter is one that atheists and agnostics will always pull out of the Bible to kind of debunk Christianity or try to say how bizarre God is. And most Christians, many Christians, don't have a response because they've not done the study of these two verses to know how to respond to it. In this strange encounter, the prophet Elisha is at Bethel, or Bethel, and these young men come up to him, and they're jeering him and calling him baldy. It's in the Bible. And Elisha curses them, and two she-bears, female bears, come out and they maul 42 boys. Like, maul them. That's kind of bizarre. They're making fun of Elisha. He curses them and two bears come and maul the whole lot of them, right? So what in the world is going on here? Let's read these two verses together in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. He, being Elisha, he went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. (laughs) That's a strange encounter. (laughs) What's going on here? I mean, the man of God is cursing these poor, poor little kids. God must be bloodthirsty, the agnostic would say, or the atheist would say, the critics would say. And as a believer in the simple gospel of grace and love, we read this and we, we're aghast because we don't actually know how to respond other than Jesus loves everybody. But sometimes there are bears. And so what we do as Christians, we'll often read a text like this and we'll turn it into a character story character story like 
there's something in the story that we can learn to build our character, right? For, for example, be brave like David or pray like Daniel. Step out in faith like Moses or have courage like Esther or be nice to your mother-in-law like Ruth. You should be nice to your mother-in-law like Ruth. You should. You should. As a believer, you should. But that's not the purpose of the story of Ruth. And so when we often don't understand things, particularly in the Old Testament, we will just turn it into a, a character story. So rather than wrestling with Scripture, we embrace a simple moralism where the implication is, I've got to obey God to be accepted by Him. But that's actually not the gospel. The gospel is you're accepted by him, and because you're accepted by him, you want to obey. You want to do what is right. It is a natural overflow of the acceptance. You and I are not fighting for God to accept us. Most Christians, many Christians, not at this church, of course, but many Christians don't know how to read the Bible. More specifically, two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament, can get Super confusing. The New Testament is a little more clear. It's a little more didactic, especially things like the book of James, where he's very clear on what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Like there, there are texts in the New Testament that's a little more obvious, but then we get to the Old Testament and you and I get a little bit confused and people will come to these two verses that are our text and, and they'll filter out some character trait. For example, they would say of Elisha and the two bears and saying, go up, bald head, go up, that the moral of the story is you should respect your elders. And you should. If you're a believer, you should, you should definitely respect your elders. They would say another moral of the story is don't touch God's anointed. Right? Elisha the prophet gets called bald head, apparently. He was short on humor and hair, and he cursed them. Don't touch God's anointed, which, you know, honestly, honor, if you live a life of honor, says that you won't do that either. But that's not the purpose of Elisha and the two bears. And so I want to help us understand the purpose of Old Testament stories and the strange encounters that we're going to find. You know, we actually know the reason for the Old Testament. Ask yourself this question. Don't answer because I don't want anyone to feel put on the spot or embarrassed, but do you know the purpose of the Old Testament? Do you know why the Old Testament was even written? The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. There's no guessing. You don't have to distill any of the information. He makes it very clear when he says in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he says, the purpose of the scripture is to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament was written to make you wise to salvation in faith through Jesus Christ. What's the point of Genesis? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the point of Exodus? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the point of Leviticus? To make you wise in salvation 
through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the point of Elisha and the two bears? And when you read the Old Testament and all of the strange encounters that we're going to cover in this series, you're going to see through the lens that it was written to make you wise to salvation through faith, through Jesus Christ. Now, how do you read the Bible in that way? How do you read the Bible in that lens? I want to show you. Is that okay? Can we spend a few minutes today and I'm just going to teach you how to read a strange encounter? And then you can go home and find a thousand other strange encounters. There are so many strange encounters. I'm going to teach you how to read it now, okay? It's going to make you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, number one. The first thing you do when you come across a strange encounter in Scripture is put it in context. Put it in context. What does that mean? Well, that means you read what's before and you read what's after. It, just reading these two verses about Elisha and the two bears and the, these poor little 42, you're not 42, year old, 42 kids, um, you could come up with all kinds of bizarre spiritual meanings that God was never trying to intend when he wrote this portion of scripture, right? Well, let's see, 42, 42, what does 42 mean? Four plus two is six, six is the number of man. That tells me that these little boys represented uh, there, there were more than three, which is uh, three is 666. This is definitely the spirit of Antichrist that is coming against Elisha, right? You, you can just read into it and, oh, she bears, mama bears, they have cubs. Maybe these people uh, killed the cubs and they're getting them back. This teaches you to don't harm nature and the animals and let them live and long live the bears, right? You, you, just reading these two verses, you can read all kinds of things. But you have to zoom out and read the entire chapter. Can we read the whole chapter together? Let's stand in honor of the reading of chapter 2. For those of you who have not done your Bible reading at all this week, you will get it in today. Now when you're hearing the minister read the Bible, I don't want you to expect something boring. I want you to see what jumps out at you. All right? Verse 1, now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. By the way, any scholars in the room, I know it's pronounced really Elisha, but I grew up with Elisha and old habits die hard. So when I say Elisha, you think Elisha, okay? Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to them, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. 
The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha. People always got to tell you the obvious, and everybody's got an opinion on stuff they don't know nothing about, but let me keep going. Elisha said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, What shall I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah, his mentor, that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. So people are wanting to go look for Elijah who just ascended in a chariot. And Elisha knows they're not going to find Elijah, but they won't be quiet. So he lets them go look anyway. They sent, therefore, fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but, not, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Verse 19, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, is not, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I've healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. We're almost there. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to 
Samaria. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So you just did good work. You just did the first step of dissecting scripture, understanding strange encounters. You read the entire, entire context. You read the entire chapter, 2 Corinthians, nope, 2 Kings chapter 2. You read the entire chapter. Now, this is the way um, that you solve mysteries, by the way. Anyone ever heard of the, the books Encyclopedia Brown? W- wave at me. A few, everyone that's about my age. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Uh, Encyclopedia Brown is a fifth grade detective. And in the book, there's about 10 cases, 10, 12, 15 cases. And this fifth grade detective solves fifth grade crimes and puzzles. And the cost of each service is 25 cents. And so people pay him to find out who stole Jimmy's bat or what happened to Margaret's homework. And so you read, you read the, the mystery, and at the very end, he solves it, and he tells you exactly who did it, um, but he doesn't tell you exactly how. It's, it says, um, how did he solve it after each story? And you don't really know how he solved it, but at the back of the book is a solution manual. So you go to the back of the book, and it says that uh, Encyclopedia Brown knew that Jimmy stole the bat because Jimmy did this in the story, and the bat was here in the story, and Susie was there in the story, so Susie couldn't have done it. And it tells you all the reasons why you know who, saw, who did the crime. Does that make a little bit of sense? So you get to, it's kind of interactive. If you have a fifth grader, get the books if they're still out. Um, you get to read this, this like thriller on fifth grade level, and you get to use your, your skills to determine who did the crime and, and why they did the crime, and then you get to verify it at the back of the book. There's only one problem with the series. Once you read the back of the book and you find out that Jimmy stole the bat and here are all the clues in the story, and then you decide even like six months later to go back and read the same book, immediately as you're reading that story, all of those clues are jumping off the page at you. Do you know what I mean? It's not subtle as it was the first time. Suddenly you understand, oh, he walked into a dark room. Oh, the bat was in the left corner. Oh, Susie had, had lunch that she had to go to. And it, it makes sense. And you're reading this mystery from the lens of understanding the end of the story. Does that make, make sense, right? In this way, This is how we read the Old Testament, because we know the Old Testament is written. Why? Go ahead, look in your notes section on your phone. You're all taking notes on your phone. I know you wrote this down, because we repeated it multiple times. To make you wise to salvation. Yes, Because we know that the Old Testament makes us wise about salvation. We've already got the key. We've read the end of the book. And there are types and there are shadows and there are patterns in the Old Testament that point to what happens after. Like we've got the key. And what is the key? The key is this. Messiah has come. Messiah died on a cross. He walked out of the grave. 
He ascended into heaven. He'll return again in glory. That's the end of the story. That is the salvation story. That's the key at the back of the book. And all the mysteries that we read in the Old Testament will always point back to that. So first, when you come across a strange encounter, you got to put it in context like we just did. You read the whole thing. We've got the key in our back pocket. We know that it's somehow pointing to Christ. Here's the next step you do. You notice the patterns that we'll see later in the story. Notice the patterns. Is there a pattern that happens later? For example, in this chapter that we just read, if you're paying attention, we see that there's a passing of the baton from Elijah to Elisha, from Elijah to Elisha. Right? There's a passing of the baton. Elijah, the mentor, his prophetic ministry is done. He's about to pass the baton to Elisha. And that's a pattern that happens later. The man of God is anointed by God to carry out this ministry. When his ministry is done, he ascends into heaven and leaves his spirit on his disciple so his disciple can carry out and finish the work that the original guy started. Are you seeing the themes come together? Some of you just got goosebumps, yeah? Okay, okay, we're understanding. Does this happen anywhere else in the Bible? Yes, with Jesus. With Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came to do a work, to do a ministry. When he was done, he ascended into heaven, not in a chariot of fire. He just descended into heaven. And then some days later, he poured upon the church the Holy Spirit. He empowered us to finish the work that he began. Okay, so you're noticing the patterns. Maybe Elisha and the two bears are coming a bit more into focus for us. After we read it in context, and then we notice the patterns, how it might tie into Jesus, how it makes us wise about Jesus and the salvation through faith, then... We notice the flashbacks. Everyone know what a flashback is? Some of you are like, no, I failed chemistry. It's not chemistry, it's English. A flashback is something in the past that has significance in the present. Anyone ever watched the show? We used to really like this show. It's cut, I don't know if it's... We don't watch it now, but we used to like it. This Is Us. Anyone? This Is Us. Are they still producing that show? Oh, it's, it's run its course. Well, in This Is Us, there, for those that haven't seen it, there are these three siblings that are like at the same age as their parents were when the parents had them. And it goes through the story of their life, these three different siblings, and it's through the ups and the downs. Their parents are now no longer with them. But the story keeps flashing back to when they were a kid. And so the, mom, the people who play mom and dad in This Is Us, it's only in the past. They're only in the flashbacks because they're not in, in the current. And so the flashbacks, it shows what's important back then that now is applicable here, you know. Um, sometimes in Scripture, it's explicit. The flashbacks are explicit, and it'll say things like, like Isaiah said, or like Jeremiah said, or like the prophet said. Those are explicit flashbacks, but sometimes there are implicit flashbacks, meaning you have to look for it. 
It's the puzzle. It's, it's the fun part of, of reading scripture. For example, in, in our text, when we see Elijah, he takes his mantle and he touches the water. And the water parts from the left to the right. We read that. Do you remember just reading that? Okay. Parts to the left and to the right. The Israelites who were reading this text, what would they immediately think of? Moses. The Red Sea, the parts, walk through on dry ground. It's a flashback, okay? So you look at what might be taking you and pointing, pointing you back. Every Israelite that is reading this would immediately think of Moses and the Red Sea. And of all the adventures that Elijah and Elisha took together, I am, I am fascinated by the fact that it lists the towns that they, they go to. They're heading back to the Jordan. Okay, if this is east... And this is west, and this is Jordan. This pulpit is Jordan. And this is east. I'm dyslexic, for real. Is this east to you? Okay, never eat slimy worms. This is east of the Jordan, all right? Elijah and Elisha are coming down from Bethel, Bethel, then to Jericho, then Elijah parts the Jordan and walks through and then over here, the whirlwind takes him up east of the Jordan. Oh, I'm getting chills. East of the Jordan. And then Elisha walks to the Jordan and says, God, where, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And, and then he parts the water left to right, and he walks through on dry ground. And then he goes to, to Jericho. Now, remember... The Jordan is the river that the children of Israel had to cross after they left Egypt. Then they were in the wilderness for 40 years. To get to their promised land, they had to cross the Jordan. And the first town they came to was Jericho, the same first town that Elisha is coming to. The second town that Elisha gets to is Bethel. Now, you remember in the exilic time, it was Ai, but Ai back then was Bethel now. So we see that Elijah and Elisha are traveling the same route that the Israelites traveled when they were coming out of exile. Do you see the flashback? It may not make sense exactly just yet, but God took them out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness, took them to the edge of the Jordan, God is sending them out to wipe out the Canaanites. Why? Because of idolatry. And then they go and these people are worshiping false gods. So they take Jericho and then there's a, an issue at Ai. And we find ourselves in the story when we think in terms of flashbacks. So you've just read this in context. You've looked for the patterns of the cross and Jesus. Now you're looking backwards and we see there's another pattern in behind of us of a foreshadow or a backshadow of the people leaving exile and coming into the promised land. Wait a minute. East of the Jordan. What else happens east of the Jordan? Elisha's taken up. Elijah's taken up. Elisha is anointed, and Elisha crosses the Jordan. Moses dies. On the east of the Jordan, Joshua is commissioned, and Joshua crosses the Jordan and takes the promised land. Jesus 
the east of Jordan meets John the Baptist, finds himself in the Jordan. The Holy Spirit comes down and there is an anointing that takes place. And then Jesus exits and fulfills his ministry. Do you see the pattern and the cycles and the shadows that continue to happen? So 2 Kings chapter 2 isn't so unique. It's happened before. Joshua, Elisha, Jesus. Then we get to the fourth point, to discern and understand these strange encounters. Notice the good news of salvation and the warning of judgment. Atheists and agnostic want to focus on two verses that, that seem to tell a horrible tale of 42 boys that get mauled by two bears. But when you zoom out, you see a beautiful story that is being echoed from Exodus all the way to Revelation of a God who brings judgment, a God who brings mercy, a God who brings salvation. But they want to zero in on two verses where judgment appears to be the focus. But when we zoom out, we notice the good news of salvation and the warning of judgment. Jim Hamilton, he's a theologian. He wrote a book. It's a, it's a biblical theology book. It's called God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. And he believes that the central message of the Bible is God shows his glory by saving people through judgment. And if that's true, then every passage you come to, you will find how God holds humanity accountable for sin and the salvation of God, how he pours out his mercy on sinners. By the way, I know we don't like the word judgment, but we got to correct our theology because the pinnacle of salvation is judgment. It was judgment on the cross of Calvary that Jesus Christ took for your behalf, that you can even be in relationship with him. So we don't despise judgment. Judgment is God's mercy to the world. We believe in a just God. And a God that is just must deliver judgment. And we see that in the text. Not only is there judgment, there's always salvation. The first city that they come to is Jericho. And you know, when... Joshua came to Jericho. He cursed the city. And since the day he cursed it, the waters had become bitter. And now we've got a second person crossing the Jordan on a new conquest, a new promise, because idolatry had sprung up again. And he comes to Jericho, the place that had been once cursed, and now he brings restoration and healing to Jericho. And he heals the water with nothing else but salt. Salt fixes chicken, salt fixes broccoli, salt fixes wells that are toxic. The whole gospel story is about a people that have been separated by God, that deserve judgment, but Jesus stood in its place so that you and I can receive salvation. So we look at Elisha. And we think he's had a bad day because he 
curses 42 boys. But the reality is, beyond those boys was a city that needed to understand idolatry wasn't going to serve them. And, and your text says small boys, but it's kind of a bad translation. When you look at the original Hebrew, it would be more like young lad, which often describes 20-something, 30-something people that are in military. It's, it, it's not an elementary school. It's not third graders that Elisha cursed. It's maybe 13, 14, 15, old enough to marry, old enough to give birth to a savior, old enough to know better. But it was more than 42, by the way. It was possibly several hundred. It was a mob who said, go up, bald head. And you think sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt. When they said go up, they were quite literally saying, you said your mentor just ascended to heaven. If that's true, why don't you get lost? Why don't you go up too? If that's true, why don't you go up? And then the term bald head, it was probably, I mean, Elisha was in his 20s, maybe 25 at this point. He still got a few decades to live and to do ministries. He's a young guy. He probably doesn't have premature balding at 25. He might. But what I think they're saying is bald head quite literally translates to without a head, meaning without your mentor. So he had just mourned the loss of someone very close to him and was stepping out on what God told him to do anyway. And the enemy comes in to stick the knife in the sore spot where the scab hasn't even had time to heal. And isn't that just like the enemy? You decide it's time to move forward, to take the promise that God has given to you, to to mourn the loss, to grieve, to step out, to move forward. And if the enemy won't bring in a bunch of people to stand in your road between you and your destiny to try to make fun of you, to try to accuse you, to try to say you did something wrong, to try to say that you don't hear from God, to say that you're not qualified, to say that you're not educated enough, to say that you're not talented enough. And if we had to distill this chapter down to one takeaway principle for you today, now that we've understood it theologically. When you face obstacles, trust that God is going to see the mission through because you're working with God, not for Him. Will you stand to your feet? Father, we come before you today. I thank you so much for just strange encounters in the word that on the surface just 
seem bizarre and odd and irrelevant. But God, you knew before the foundations of the earth that you were sending your son, Jesus Christ, to ransom a people that would call you king, that would call you Lord. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, your word points to the salvation of Jesus Christ. God, may we be wise to the salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. May every strange encounter that we go through this week, whether it's with coworkers or families or friends, acquaintances, may every strange encounter make us wise to the salvation through faith of Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would bless us today. God, that you would help us to be a blessing, be a blessing to our neighbor, be a blessing to our city, be a blessing to you, and be a blessing to ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here today. By the way, if there are any business leaders or CEOs in the room, if you go back and read that chapter, you will find another sermon that I wanted to preach so bad, and it's the power of partnership. The power of partnership. So go back and read chapter two. It's going to give you tons of wealth in leading organization. We love you guys so much for being here today. Now that you, we love you guys so much. Thank you for being here today. We don't love you because you were here. We love you anyway, but thank you for being here today. Now that you've been to church, go be the church. God bless you.